This is Africa Digest. A very good evening to you and welcome to Africa Digest. This is, of course, Channel Africa, your voice of the African Renaissance. And this is coming to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequency 7260 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa, as well as online at www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Kahisho Tsketelo in studio today with Amanda Machaka, Tracy Boomgaard and Neto Temane. The top stories on Africa Digest this hour. South Africa's political parties debate Ramaphosa's Sona speech. The African Union Summit has discussed issues of peace and security in the continent. Tomorrow, the world marks World Radio Day. In your economics news, South Zimbabwe's former finance minister, Tendai Biti, says the government is to launch a new local currency this week. And in your sports news, Cameroon and African football legend Samuel Eto has not ruled out running for presidency in his home country in the future. But first, here's Amanda Machaka with your news. Thank you, Kahisho. Good evening. Politicians and the civil society in Senegal are calling for calm after clashes between militants of the ruling party and those of the opposition that led to one death. Perceived as a model of democracy in Africa, the presidential campaigns in Senegal have been marred by violence in recent days. Several injuries were recorded before the skirmish that broke out in Tambacunda, east of the capital, Dakar. During an election rally, President Murky Sall decried the violent atmosphere and called on his supporters not to give in to provocation, inviting his opponents to do the same. Senegalese human rights organizations have urged authorities to investigate all acts of violence that have occurred since the beginning of the electoral campaign. United Nations experts say racial discrimination is endemic in Belgium's institutions and that the nation needs to apologize for crimes committed during its colonization of the Democratic Republic of Congo. The UN Working Group of Experts on People of African Descent in an interim report on Belgium says the root causes of present-day human rights violations lie in the lack of recognition of the true scope of violence and injustice of colonization. The group will present its final conclusions in September. It lauded the Belgian government for its willingness to combat racism. Belgium's government says it will first assess the report before reacting. A civil court case is underway in the Netherlands brought by Nigerian Ogoni activists against the Hague-based oil company Royal Dutch Shell. The firm is accused of having been complicit in the executions of nine Ogoni men during a Nigerian military crackdown in 1995. Four of their widows are suing Shell for compensation and demanding an apology. Shell denies any wrongdoing, saying it never colluded with Nigerian authorities or advocated any act of violence. Ogoni land in the Niger Delta has long been blighted by environmental pollution blamed on oil production. In the UK, Shell fought a legal action against Nigerians complaining that their fishery had been affected. In Italy, the firm INE is accused of alleged corruption in the purchase of Nigerian oil fields. 
A Gauteng Health Department employee in South Africa has lodged a complaint against the Bank of Lisbon with the Public Protector's Office. The building was engulfed in flames early last year, leading to the deaths of three firemen. The employee says that the department failed to take action regarding the unsafe working conditions at the building. Public Protector spokesperson Opa Sikhalwe. The complainant also alleges victimization of employees who complained about the problem before the disaster. They also complain about uh, what they term irregular expenditure in respect of the fact that about 700 employees are sitting at home since September last year because there is no place for them to work from. The public protector is still assessing that particular complaint for jurisdiction and merit. Only after that process will the public protector be in a position to make a call. And finally, police in Turkey have launched an operation to arrest more than a 1,000 people suspected of having links to the U.S.-based Islamic cleric Fethullah Gulen. He's accused by the Turkish government of organizing the failed coup attempt three years ago. The BBC's Selin Gerrit reports. This was one of the biggest operations launched against the alleged supporters of Fethullah Gulen since the coup attempt. The arrest warrants relate to a police recruitment exam nine years ago. Turkish prosecutors say that the exam was rigged so that Gulen supporters were given the answers in advance. The government argues that this was part of a scheme to allow his followers to infiltrate the police force, the army and the judiciary in order to weaken Turkish democracy. They accuse Mr. Gulen of masterminding the coup attempt three years ago. Since the coup, more than 77,000 people have been jailed pending trial. For Channel Africa News, I'm Amanda Machaga. Thank you to Amanda with your news. Your top story this hour, Democratic Alliance, the DA's leader, Musi Maimani, has slammed the governing African National Congress, the ANC, for what he says was the creating of the conditions for the massive load shedding that has hit the country. South Africa remains in the grip of stage three load shedding following the tripping of seven power stations. Six of the seven generators are back online and the last one is expected to be brought back online later today. Maimani was speaking in Parliament during the debate on President Cyril Ramaphosa's State of the Union address that he delivered last week. Mr. President, if you cannot even remove the corrupt from your own cabinet, from the Bosasa benches, then how dare do we as South Africans believe you when you say you are cleaning up government? Even you and your own son benefited from Bosasa. Only a year ago, Eight times you had an opportunity to save our country from Mr. Jacob Zuma. And eight times you voted to protect him. Your record will always reflect a hundred percent behind Zuma, a man you describe as a very strong president. What worries me the most is that this morning's headlines say that, Mr. President, you were shocked when the lights went off. How could you have been shocked when you were there and you watched the destruction of of ESCOM? You were there, Mr. President. Mr. President, you speak about tinkering ESCOM to keep the lights on. I want to tell you the good news. Where the deer is in government, 85% of the municipalities here in the Western Cape already have laws in place that allow for independent solar energy generation. Most of them geared to sell energy back to the grid. 
These are the kind of solutions that we must be looking for to make our country energy secure and escom That is the voice of Musi Maimani, leader of the Democratic Alliance, the DA. Meanwhile, President Cyril Ramaphosa has been accused of pleasing white people by trying to privatize South Africa's power utility, ESCOM. This accusation was made by the leader of the Economic Freedom Fighters, the EFF, Julius Malema. If you proceed to privatize ESCOM, be rest assured that we as the Economic Freedom Fighters will seriously confront your government and IPPCs because they represent capitalist greed and obsession with money at the expense of our people. The president did not give a thorough diagnosis of the challenges that confront ESCOM, but has a remedy that will benefit his friends and family. Your diagnosis deals only with the financial aspect of the crisis and you don't provide structural and strategic diagnosis of the asset. Mr. President, you have completely abandoned politics to impress white monopoly capital and the West and America. Your approach to ESCOM is going to destroy the power utility and as people who will be here and still active in the next 30 to 40 years, we are not going to allow you to destroy ESCOM for quick personal gains. What is more painful is that you have abandoned politics and you put profit and business in everything else you do. There is no ideological justification you can give on why you want to unbundle ESCOM, except the fact that you and your immediate stand to benefit, including your companies, because you are still an active a business person who just took leave to come and irritate us here. Let us deal with ESCOM problems honestly and openly because an attempt to privatize it will never be accepted. And you must be rest assured, President, that if you are not going to give an assurance that you will relook into this ESCOM matter, will waste no time, will go to the picket lines and defend this strategic asset of our people. You made an announcement here that Total has made an enormous oil and gas discovery which you claim will be a game changer. What you didn't say is that more than 90% of the oil and gas discovery will benefit foreign companies. These people came here, colonized us, took our resources, took our gold, took our diamond, and now they come and take the oil and gas under our own watch, yet we claim to have defeated colonialism. And that is the leader of the Economic Freedom Fighters, EFF, Julius Malema, still to come on the show, Ndebo Mokobo, on the infighting between the two factions of the PAC. Stay tuned. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, It's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and and, (laughs) and do my part and do it really, really well.
It's Tuesday, the 12th of February, 2019. Welcome to Africa Digest, if you're just joining us. The infighting between the two factions of the Pan-African Congress, the PAC, may see the party losing out to participate in the elections. The Electoral Commission of South Africa, the IEC, is refusing to recognize both factions led by uh, Nereus Molonto and Zwane Lenyonto, who both claim to be legitimate leaders of the PAC. The electoral body has since instructed them to sort their relationship problems or seek an urgent court intervention before the election. But both leaders now accuse the IEC of negotiating in bad faith and the matter is now set for the Constitutional Court. Ndebo Mokobo reports. The IEC has written a two-page letter to both factions of the PAC asking them to speedily resolve their leadership dispute for the purpose of contesting in the forthcoming elections. IEC Chief Electoral Officer Saima Mabolo says if this dispute is not resolved before the deadline for parties to submit their list of candidates, the Commission will not accept any list from either factions, which means the PAC will not be able to contest the 2019 national and provincial elections. The Commission met with the two leadership groupings of the PAC and subsequent to those engagements came to the conclusion that they are unable to discern who the true leadership of the party is. And it is now upon um, those um, groupings to decide how they want to clarify the matter for the commission going forward. But Narias Moloto from another faction is sitting with anger, accusing the IEC of aggression against his group and insisting that he has no option but to approach the highest court in the land. I have received a letter from the IEC before I came here. We forwarded it to our lawyers. There is nothing that the high court can do. This we take it as an aggression against the PAC. We are not happy with this. And also the fact that uh, all these court orders have been rendered useless pieces of paper by the IEC itself is not making us happy. There is a supporter, there is an aggression which is unwarranted. Now, clearly, we need to approach the Constitutional Court because it's the highest court than the court orders that we have had. For instance, you cannot go to SCA because you are not appealing. The only court with the jurisdiction on these issues is the Constitutional Court. The Deputy President of another faction, Buiselo Gantu, on the other hand, says they don't want to settle their matters in courts. He says they will seek a compromise for the sake of unity rather than battling it out in courts. We don't have to lose hope on this matter. We believe that we must go to our former leaders and try to persuade the other party to understand that it is important that we go on elections as a collective because we don't expect courts to solve PAC things. We can only go that route if only if we don't find any other solution. But that is the last resort that we'll, we'll opt for. Yes, we are prepared to, to compromise on anything that will help the PAC to move forward. That compromise will be that we can accommodate the Demloto in our election list if it comes to a push because already Ronan, Dadem Peyton, Dadem Binda, Dadem we are in one big group. And as the leadership battle rages on in the PAC, some pundits say the party runs the risk of missing the opportunity to participate in the elections and lose its only seat in parliament. I am Debo Mokobe in Johannesburg. Still in South Africa, while South Africa's power utility ESCOM is battling to bring back seven of their power generators that went offline yesterday, people have expressed frustrations over load shedding. The power utility implemented stage 4 load shedding for the first time in more than 10 years, and it has continued with stage 3 today. President Cyril Ramaphosa yesterday expressed anger at the load shedding. His public enterprises minister, Pravin Godan, held, held lengthy meetings with ESCOM's board, which said it was addressing a number of issues, including the poor performance of the new power plants. Sengu Mkwanazi spoke to some consumers and filed this report. So how are you? 
How was things? Nice. Long, yeah. ne? Early this morning, I was busy and then everything just went. Yeah, and where's your stuff? They are gone on site with a site where they got power. Meet Vinny. He makes custom-made glass and mirrors in Fortsburg, Johannesburg. He says his business has been severely affected by the ongoing load shedding. Unfortunately, we're in a bit of a situation whereby work stands still. And um, it's not really helping any customer in that way because customers will come complain. And, you know, it's just that we have to kind of sacrifice a lot. Some homeowners and businesses around the city of Joburg have resorted to the use of generators to try to keep the light on. However, Vinny says it's too costly. A generator does help. It helps to a certain extent to run a certain amount of, of, of equipment. Small equipment, small generator, big equipment requires bigger generator. While some residents are worried about their groceries, this lady says her entire fridge has defrosted and she's afraid all the frozen foods may go off too. There's no electricity. Every day we got problems for electricity. Now we're not right. We don't feel well because we are stuck. Check the... It's hot. It can be rotten because the fridge is off. ESCOM announced stage 4 load shedding on Monday. Clark's command says this led her to go on an unplanned outing with money she didn't have. This load shedding is such an inconvenience. For example, last night, my daughter has a test this morning. She needed to study. She couldn't study. We also had to go and find food. You know, I'm spending money that I have not budgeted for. It's, it's not only expensive, but it's also inconvenient. I think the government really needs to come to the party. While some are worried that their food will be half-cooked or faced with the prospect of a cold shower in the morning, Vinny says it's time to look for alternative sources of energy. Our plates and stuff like that, or we have to keep it on our, our hot water plates. and You know, simple, simple basics. We'll be back to down to basics. This is Lengue M. Kwanazi, Johannesburg. Former South African President Thabo Mbeki says the governing African National Congress has requested him to join the campaigns for the party ahead of this year's elections. Mbeki, however, said he would also work with all stakeholders, regardless of their party affiliations, to seek solutions to some of the problems facing South Africa. He spoke to Sophie Mukwena in Ethiopia hours after the African Union summit. Indeed, the ANC have already officially has officially approached me about that. No, there's no problem about it. As you say, I'm a member of the ANC, and we need to... Oh, this time around, there's no problem. No, there, there isn't any problem about it. I've, uh, as I said, they've approached me, there's no problem about it. So, no, that, that is, that will be done. But, Sophie, there's another related matter that we need to address. There's a related matter that we need to address, which I'm sure you know. I get messages from many South Africans whose political identity I never ask. But the, the main basic, main basic message is this. But there are certain challenges that the country is facing. Why aren't you doing something about that? We've, we've got to respond to that as well. And they're not addressing me, not just ANC, but they're saying you, you are our president for whatever, many years, you know very well these problems. And we believe you can help us to address these problems. Now, so we've got to do two things. We've got to do what we need to do with regard to ANC work. But we've got to do other things which require that we respond to a view that's expressed by the population that we don't want to attach any particular party labels to you. 
because you've got some national tasks. So we must be able to do both. Now, 74 years after nuclear weapons obliterated the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the risk that nuclear weapons will again be used is growing. This is according to aid organization, the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC. The organization says it is deeply concerned about what it calls a worrying erosion of the nuclear disarmament and arms control framework in light of the recent decisions by some states which contribute to a trend towards a new nuclear arms race. The ICRC is calling on concerned states and those in a position to influence them to reverse the trend. Now, to discuss this further, we are joined on the line by Tendai Sengwe, Communications Manager at ICRC South Africa. Welcome, sir. Good afternoon and good afternoon to the listeners. Thank you for joining us. Um, so now you're saying that the risk that nuclear weapons will again be used is growing. This is obviously worrying now. Is the world gearing up for a nuclear war, given this growing trend? Well, I think the first place for us to start really is the, the reality of what nuclear weapons can do. Uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, the, they, are, they have horrific consequences. The ICRC was there in 1945 and did its best to assist uh, Japanese communities uh, who were directly affected by uh, the first nuclear weapons that were dropped. So they have catastrophic and, most importantly, irreversible consequences. We can't go back. So whether these are larger weapons or even ones that are smaller, and the majority of weapons that are out there today, nuclear weapons specifically, are ones that are significantly more powerful than the ones that were dropped in 1945. So our real concern right now is that we, we have, for the first time, a, a, a global agreement and a sense of urgency around banning the weapons. Uh, so let's take that chance because uh, we can't go back if these are ever used. And uh, the, the, the impact is, is decisive and, 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 and pretty horrible. Yeah. Hello? Can you hear me, sir? Yes, I can. I can still hear you, yes. Lost you there for a second. Um, I was, uh, my question was, the African continent specifically, how would it be, how would we be uh, affected directly by the use of um, these chemical weapons? Well, the use of nuclear weapons uh, can have a, it's not just a, a, an effect on a particular context. It, it can affect, uh, it, uh, it affects people. Uh, it, the, the, the nuclear weapons can, uh, radiation and other aspects can go into, into the atmosphere, and the atmosphere uh, of our Earth is, is a global environment. So, um, African states have made an initial commitment uh, to, to what's known as the Pelandaba Treaty to create an Africa nuclear-free zone. However, what we are aiming for here is to work with African states and, and all states around the world for a global ban. That's the only way that we can avoid these, these, these horrific, uh, this horrific reality of the use of nuclear weapons. It can't just be African states saying, they are not going to be used. Uh, it needs to be all states. To do their bit to try and reverse uh, reverse this trend, do you think your call will be heeded? And who specifically are you speaking to? Well, we we're optimistic uh, from, uh, because this is a process uh, that has been going on for a few years. We've been working with different states uh, around the African continent, including South Africa. 
uh, and Nigeria who have been quite uh, vocal in helping to, to move this issue forward. Uh, at the end of the day, what we, we do need is the support of all. Uh, we need uh, we need for all state for the, those states who do have nuclear weapons to see that uh, there's a decisive change uh, in the attitude and the beliefs of others that the, it's it's wrong uh, and that they shouldn't be used. And the most important thing about the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons is that it actually creates the opportunity for those countries that do have the weapons to eventually join to to, to disarm and to join this 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 global ban on nuclear weapons. So we believe that we have a once-in-a-generation, a a lifetime uh, opportunity here uh, that we shouldn't miss because um, uh, the the risk and the the trend is quite worrying at the moment about uh, suggestions that they might be used or or, or, uh, they they remain a key part of how people believe they they, they they can address issues. Now, so as members of the public now, how can we get involved and how, you know, what, how can we do our bit and what is our bit uh, in helping you uh, with this campaign? Well, I think it's important that members of the public who feel strongly about this engage their, their relevant governments wherever they are in, in each country uh, and remind their decision makers uh, and lawmakers that this is an important priority because it doesn't just affect one community around the world, it has a global impact. Um, so, and we have launched the interesting material on our on our website, which is www.icc.org, where people can come and engage and, and see why we, we we think this matters now. So, the the critical step really is the the different states around the world taking the step to to sign this treaty. We've had quite a big number already doing that. Then putting it into domestic legislation. Uh, so that the use, the stockpiling, the transfer, and everything related to the possible use of nuclear weapons is banned. So uh, the public have a a key part in it, uh, in helping their lawmakers and and decision makers in their respective countries to to heed this call, uh, to make the ban a reality. Thank you very much for your time, sir. Thank you. That's Tendai Sengwe, Communications Manager at the International Committee of the Red Cross South Africa branch. Thank you very much for joining us. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. You're still tuned into Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa, your voice of the African Renaissance. The African Union Summit has discussed issues of peace and security in the continent. Priorities were given to countries that are still reeling from persistent conflict, including Somalia, Democratic Republic of Congo and Libya. Channel Africa's Koleta Wanjohi spoke to the African Union Commissioner of Peace and Security, Ismail Kirgui, on issues that were discussed and sent us this report. 
The African Union leaders meeting to discuss peace and security say they have realized the progress that has been made so far by the warring factions of South Sudan in agreeing to go for a transitional government under the to a compromised peace agreement. They have, however, noted that the country needs more financial and technical support to stay afloat and avoid drifting back to conflict. The African Union Commissioner for Peace and Security, Ishmael Shergui, explains what the heads of state discussed. I want to, uh, again, make a call to all the friends of South Sudan and the region uh, to really mobilize uh, resources so that we don't relapse again in, in, in what violence, I mean, uh, which are not at, uh, I mean, as human beings, we cannot accept such level of violence, including violence against women, uh, the plight of uh, refugees, displaced persons. Anyway, I think I don't have to describe you the humanitarian situation in that country, you know it. Commissioner Shergui also says the heads of state discussed about the conflict in Libya, which began in, with the Arab Spring protests in 2011, led to a civil war, foreign military intervention, and the hosting and death of the leader, Muammar Gaddafi. But until now, the country is yet to have a government that is accepted by all. Uh, there is a total agreement between the African Union and UN to work hand in hand so that we can promote a reconciliation conference of all, inclusive uh, reconciliation conference between all the Libyans. So this will be uh, done with UN <coughs> together. And thereafter, we'll, we'll see if we can, from now, uh, have an idea when we can, this, the elections can be organized in coordination with the the Libyan authorities indeed. The heads of state also discussed about Somalia, where efforts have so far been made by the African Union to maintain peace and enable the country to take over its own security through the deployment of the Africa mission in Somalia, Amisom. However, insecurity continues. But overall, I think we are advancing in the implementation of the transitional plan. The issues of uh, relations between the federal government and the regional government has been discussed and we, we are hopeful uh, that there will be movement uh, in the right way in terms of promoting uh, reconciliation, coordination, good governance. I think this will be important as uh, we as Africa Union, where we deployed, uh, as you know, Amisom Force, we want to prepare the uh, Somali national forces to take over the security in their country. The com- it's 5.30 p.m. Central African time. Amanda Machaka with your headlines. Thank you, Kahisho. Good evening. Nigeria's government acknowledges that there has been a resurgence of violence by Islamic extremists in the country's troubled northeast region in the weeks before the country's upcoming national elections on Saturday. Politicians and the civil society in Senegal are calling for calm after clashes between militants of the ruling party and those of the opposition that led to one death and a civil court case is underway in the Netherlands brought by Nigerian Ogoni activists against the Hague-based oil company Royal Dutch Shell. Those are news headlines.
Thank you, Amanda. South African economist Dr. Azar Jamin says the response by global ratings agency Moody's to the announcement of the unbundling of power utility ESCOM into three different units might be a sign of a possible downgrade by the agency next month. Moody said the, the splitting would, have, would pave the, the way rather for greater transparency but do little to solve the firm's financial difficulties. The state-owned utility has been rolling out black, uh, blackouts for three days since Sunday, as some generating units unexpectedly went offline. The rand fell to its weakest in almost three weeks, and ESCOM's dollar-denominated 2028 bond suffered its steepest daily fall in more than two months, as investors fretted about the economic impact of the power cuts. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa announced a plan last week to split ESCOM into three separate uh, entities in an effort to make it more efficient. ESCOM says the power cuts will last until April. Jamin explains. I think it's a very sensible uh, reaction. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that they made that uh, statement so early, but uh, it's also a little alarming because it does suggest to us that uh, maybe the organization will put us on a, a negative outlook for credit rating changes when it assesses South Africa on the 29th of March. And uh, that sets up a possibility of a downgrade to junk status by Moody's. And when one bears in mind that Moody's is the only one of the three credit rating agencies, the big ones, that still has us on a investment grade outlook, uh, that mm-hmm. would be quite a devastating blow if they were to downgrade us further. Uh, and uh, what they're basically saying is, yes, you can split up ESCOM into three bits, etc., but in the short term, you're not going to solve the financial difficulties where you've got uh, an organization that has debts of 420 billion rand that is paying interest of more than 40 billion rand per month and yet is generating cash flows of only 27 billion rand, mm. uh, you know, so it's on a hiding second to none and simply splitting up uh, the organization in the short term is not going to solve the problem. It may be a longer term solution, but uh, you've got to somehow find ways of resolving the financial difficulties in the short term. Otherwise, you're going to have continuous uh, blackouts and uh, it'll be devastating for the South African economy. Now, speaking about uh, short-term versus long-term, we are hearing that the power cuts are meant to cease in April. How do you think that this is going to affect uh, the, the economy over the next three months? Over the, the, It will certainly affect the economy over the next three months from a direct effect. I mean, yesterday I was listening to uh, spokesman from the mining industry suggesting that already mining output... Uh, in the last couple of days has reduced by 20% as a result of these power cuts. Now extrapolate that to other sectors of the economy and you're talking about the possibility that load shedding, if it persists through to April, we're talking about uh, an impact of 0.1 to 0.2% of GDP per week. Mm. Uh, Now if it carries on at the current level, then you're talking about uh, a recession in the South African economy as a result of this negative growth uh, for the first uh, quarter uh, if you carry on at this kind of rate. Now, lastly, do you think that the government understands what is happening at ESCOM? I mean, considering that this has happened before, several years ago, and also how to handle ESCOM as a whole? What is a bit disturbing is the recognition that uh, uh, President Ramaphosa was head of the uh, 
so-called war room to sort out things mm. uh, at ESCOM in 2015. Mm. And surely he would understand what's going on, and yet it still hasn't resolved the 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 problems that uh, uh, arise in the uh, utility. And that's Dr. Azar Jamin, Chief Economist at Econ- Econometrics on the line to Samora Mangezi. Now, every year about 420,000 people die and 600 million fall ill as a result of food contaminated with bacteria, viruses and toxins. The Food and Agriculture Organization's David Massey explains why we should all care about food safety. Well, I think it depends a lot where you're from, where you live, uh, what you're doing, what you're eating. There are some extreme examples uh, in my time working and dealing with food safety. You hear people telling stories of being able to detect the remnants of Chernobyl in berries. There are videos on YouTube of plastic apparently appearing in rice. And there are even been cases of one food pretending to be another food. So unscrupulous um, restaurateurs in some parts of the world might uh, sell you something rather expensive, but actually it's something very, very cheap. But I, but I would stress that these are extreme uh, cases. Food safety is about following very, very simple, simple rules to make sure that you don't uh, catch bacteria or viruses or parasites or, again, going back to my own country, the UK, something from mad cow disease. Right. It's just I've never really thought about this in such detail. When I buy food from the supermarket, I trust that it's safe. I assume there's checks and balances in place to ensure that what ends up on my plate is okay to eat. Is it not then? I would draw a distinction from uh, developed countries and developing countries. Um, uh, We take absolutely for granted that our supermarkets, our food suppliers, the shop round the corner, your family... And ultimately, I suppose your government is ensuring that food is safe. And there are incredible systems in place to make sure that, of course, everything you do eat, that it is safe. But if you are not so fortunate, if you are living in a place with poor sanitation, where you are actually food insecure, you don't actually have enough to eat, then you can't make such good choices. And what are the main factors contributing to this now and looking into the future? Well, the big picture, I'd say, is certainly climate change and urbanisation. If there's less water in some parts of the world, people will be moving to cities. That changes their diets, that changes their lifestyles. Uh, The second thing, the the global food supply chain, where our food comes from, how far it has to travel. Food is going to have to travel further to meet the needs of people who live in urbanised settings, with maybe 10 million people living in these mega cities of the future. You're going to get the case of food um, being bought online. Already so much food is bought online. Where are the checks? What technology do we need in place to ensure that that food is safe? That, that's interesting. What role can technology play in determining if food is unsafe? Well, I imagine you want your olive oil to be olive oil, right? Yes. Imagine going into the supermarket with your mobile phone, scanning the bottle, and it will tell you if it was really olive oil or not. Not by reading the barcode, but by actually looking at the qualities of the oil. That's a potential future use of technology. Blockchain technology, uh, another fascinating world which people usually think of in terms of cryptocurrency. But if you can eliminate paper certification for food traveling across borders, and if you can have a trusted system of exchange of digital information, then things are going to move faster, safer, with more traceability, and you can guarantee that your product at the end of that journey is as authentic as when it started. 
So that's one example of what a future food safety measure might look like. What should governments be doing to ensure that our food is safe? They need to work together. They need to bring together all the stakeholders, all people responsible for the food chain, set strong regulations, develop regulatory authorities that you have good standards, good codes of practice, good aquaculture practice, good um, agriculture practice good farming methods. These are the things that will ensure that all the way along the continuum from farm to fork or from grass to glass that food is safe. Because it's not just the threat to human health, it's also the economic aspect of this. If people are sick, they can't work. This affects young people more, vulnerable people, marginalized people, and people affected by conflict or people migrating. It's a vicious circle. But how do you create a world where the food safety standards in one country are the same as the standards in another country? Well, that's exactly where you need the world full of standards, which is the Codex Alimentarius. Um, This is the International Standard Setting Authority for Food Safety, a joint program between FAO and WHO. Here you are setting the benchmark standards to ensure that what we eat and what we trade is safe of the expected quality and therefore meeting the international regulations under the World Trade Organization. So what about us consumers? What can we do to ensure that the food that we're eating or we're buying is actually safe? Again, here I would distinguish between uh, you and I in our homes in a relatively comfortable environment and other situations around the world. The keys that the World Health Organization put together, though, are quite simple and straightforward. And we should all try to follow things like keeping your hands clean. You know, you go into a, a delicatessen in any part of the world and you might see the person with gloves or without gloves. Now, what do you think? Better to have gloves or better not to have gloves? I'd say better to have gloves. Yeah, and there's two great big schools of thought because if, the, if you're wearing gloves but you've got your finger in your hair, then you're not solving any problems. So clean is or the issue Or handling money perhaps as exactly. well. Exactly. So temperature, really, really important. You can kill a lot of things by cooking them thoroughly. That's David Massey of the Food and Agriculture Organization talking to Charlotta Thomas, Lomas rather. The World Tomorrow marks World Radio Day. We spoke to the Chief, Chief Executive Officer of South Africa's Liberty Radio Awards, Lance Rothschild, about the current state of the country's radio industry and where it is headed. That radio can be interpreted and heard by anyone. Um, you don't need to necessarily be highly educated. Um, it, it appeals across all uh, spectres of the population. Obviously, unfortunately, those that are hearing impaired have a problem with radio. But other than that, it is probably the broadest reaching medium. And also from a transport and, uh, and reception perspective, it's a relatively inexpensive medium to own and to use as a consumer. So from the listener's perspective, you know, it's, it's a lot cheaper to run a radio set that a TV set, uh, radios are far more portable, even wind-up radios, which uh, work very well in areas where there's no electricity. Talk to us now about you know, the current state of radio uh, in South Africa and really where it's headed to. So in South Africa, the radio industry is relatively competitive at the moment. It could be more competitive in my book. Um, and I have had long, you know, ongoing discussions and, and published papers about that in the past. So you know, you've got a, a radio environment that emerged from the past, from our old past where the SABC was the only player in the industry, to a lot of players. You've got obviously a, a very thriving and substantial community radio uh, sector. You've got a campus radio sector which now actually has access to uh, external airwaves. 
And then you've got your uh, public broadcasting sector, which is part of the SABC's mandate, and then your commercial, which is SABC and various commercial players. Radio Today, uh, as, an, as a medium, uh, attracts a lot of advertising revenue and attracts a lot of uh, interest. Over the past several decades, people have been predicting radio's demise uh, at the expense of other media, and what's happened is that radio today is still more vibrant uh, and still attracting a, a big audience. In South Africa, radio reaches something like 92% of the population on a weekly basis, and uh, you know, numbers just continue to grow. Uh, people still find radio very compelling, and the medium has a lot of life left ahead of it. It seems to be that radio has been very, very adept at in adopting new technologies, so things like uh, social media, cellular technology, they've all been insumed into the radio industry and uh, worked together with the radio industry to make ultimately the relationship between the station and the listener so much closer. Lance, you are the CEO of the uh, Liberty Radio Awards, uh, which are really to you know, award excellence and recognize that excellence uh, in the radio industry in the country. Talk to us briefly about uh, these awards and how they've really done um, over the years. So, so this year will be the ninth awarding of uh, the radio awards in this country. And we've seen growth every year, year on year, since we started the radio awards. They actually started in 2010, and we had a break for the year 2016. But other than that, the awards have run and they've grown every year, year on year, and they continue to grow. The importance of the awards is that it's the industry's awards. It's seen across the industry. It's very, very well accepted um, and has been affirmed by the industry as the awards across the industry. We uh, break down the radio into its various silos of competition. So you've got your campus, your community, your PBS, and your commercial radio uh, competing in their, each, you know, in their individual silos. Um, and each year we, we, we've seen substantial growth. This year, just over 1,900 entries, which just from a, a, a logistic... It's 15 minutes to the hour 6, Central African time. Tracy Boomgard is standing by with your economics news. Thank you, Kahisho. Presidential Envoy Mkribisi Jonas says the South African government will have to manage its finances and debts very well in the next few years if the country wants to avoid further downgrade and IMF bailouts. He has been speaking at the Eastern Cape Investment Conference at the East London's ICC. Jonas says the next few years will be tough and the government needs to come up with ways of growing the economy and create jobs. The next few years will be tough and will remain locked in fiscal consolidation framework. And probably that's the context, that we are entering a very difficult period for the next coming years. A period where we need to continue with fiscal consolidation, in other words, managing government spending, expenditure, managing debt, etc., in order to avoid further downgrades of our economy but also to avoid a real possibility of IMF bailouts with all their disastrous consequences. So we have a huge challenge, as it were. And it is not a fiscal challenge, it is a growth challenge. 
Economists say the marginal improvement in the jobs number is no cause for celebration. Statistics South Africa published a jobs figures showing that unemployment rate has declined marginally in the fourth quarter in line with markets expectations to 27.1%. Economists expect the decline supported by seasonal hiring in the fourth quarter. Busisiwe Khadebe is an economist with Nedbank. The marginal improvement you've seen in the numbers is nothing to get excited about. Usually, if you just look at the figures seasonally, unemployment actually declines in December. And remember, in December, you're hiring extra sort of casual workers and those kind of people to do that type of job. So you do see those numbers come down. What we've seen in the past, is that we've seen actually a bigger drop usually in unemployment in December, and this time the drop wasn't so big. I mean, it went from 27.5% to 27.1% unemployment. Ugandans will be able to buy government securities through a mobile money platform in a move by the East African country to become less dependent on commercial banks and institutional investors for its funding. The government says the measure will boost savings and investment among ordinary Ugandans as well as drive economic growth. Ugandans with mobile money accounts will now be able to directly buy government debt. The move follows a similar this move follows a similar move by Kenya in 2017 and will also open up the market to Uganda's diaspora. Kenya's public debt increased by 2 million US dollars between July and December last year. This was revealed in data released by the Central Bank of Kenya. The Treasury has had difficulties raising new debt on the domestic front, especially in the six months to December 2018, as investors shied away from the bonds market due to the long tenor of securities the government was flouting. Zimbabwe's finance minister, former rather finance minister Tendai Biti, says the government is to launch a new local currency this week. This follows a recent announcement by current finance minister Mtuli Ngube, indicating that the country would have its own currency within 12 months. BT, however, has proposed that Zimbabwe adopt the South African rand instead of launching a new currency. He took aim at the country's central bank, asking the question on social media site Twitter if Zimbabwe really needed a central bank. Meanwhile, the government has dismissed the claims by BT as contemptible fake news. The U.S. dollar is trading at 359.26 Nigerian Naira, 10.26 Botswana Pula at 99.85 Kenyan Chilean and at 11.78 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.73 Brazilian Hale, 65.64 Russian Ruble, 71.10 Indian Rupee, 6.77 Chinese Yuan and a 13.70 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 88 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,308 and platinum at $786 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $61.95 a barrel. For Channel African News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Thank you, Tracy. Now to tell us what is happening to Orlando Paris in particular and more sports, here's Neto Shimane.
Thank you, Kakisha, from the Sports Desk. A very good evening. Starting with football news. Cameroon and African football legend Samuel Eto'o has not ruled out running for presidency in his home country in future. Former Liberian international and world footballer of the year, George Weah is now the president of his country after he had a successful football career. Eto'o, who lives for Qatar today, was in the country as an ambassador for Castle Fife's tournament. He spoke through an interpreter. Oh, je pense tout d'abord, je pense que tout est possible dans la vie, pas seulement de mon côté. You say that everything is possible and there is no 10,000 million jobs where Every, everybody has his own destiny and then George Weah think that uh, he can help his country being president and other, other person can help his, uh, them country in a different way. So the most important is to be mm-hmm. involved in mm-hmm. this South African Premiership side Orlando Pirates were defeated 2-0 in the CAF Champions League encounter by Esperanza at the Stade Elmenza in Tunisia, Tunisia this afternoon. The two teams were prior to the clash locked on five points after three matches played in Group B and they produced a goalless draw at the Orlando Stadium two weeks ago. Bucks considered an early goal in the first stanza of the match converted by Esperanza's Anis Padre in the opening 15 minutes with the second scored a few minutes before final whistle. Tunisian-based outfit Esperance is now top of Group B with eight points after two wins and two draws. Pirates are second with five points. Gordon Banks, the goalkeeper in England's 1966 World Cup winning team, has died at the age of 81, says his former club Stoke City. Banks won 73 caps for England between 1963 and 1972 and made nearly 200 appearances for Stoke before his playing career was brought to an end due to a car crash that cost him the side in one eye. He was widely regarded as one of the greatest goalkeepers to have played the game and will perhaps be best remembered for the diving stop he made to deny Brazil's Pele at the 1970 World Cup, which later became known as the save of the century. Banks began his career at Chesterfield in 1958 and moved to Leicester City the following year. He won his first England cap in 1963, four years before he joined Stoke. On to tennis news. Wheelchair Tennis South Africa has named two teams to represent the nation in the upcoming BNP Paribas World Team Cup African Qualification Tournament in Nairobi, Kenya. The country will, rep- will be represented by five players in the men's and women's divisions at the international team event, which takes place at the Nairobi Club from the 14th to the 17th of February. South Africa are set to face hosts Kenya, Ghana, Egypt, Morocco, Mauritius and Tanzania, with all seven teams looking to end qualification into the BNP Paribas World Team Cup that will be hosted by the Israel Tennis Association, ITA, in May. Patrick Selepe, the team manager of South Africa, has more details. South Africa will be part of uh, other countries that uh, will be taking part at the World Team Cup qualifying in Africa. The main reason for that is to qualify for the Global uh, World Team Cup, uh, which will be in May. So countries that are in Africa that didn't play last year, they have to participate in order to qualify for that event. And finally, in cricket news... 
The International Cricket Council ICC World Cup trophy is in Nigeria for its three-day tour of one of four African countries among the 21 nations that will host the coveted trophy. The trophy is in its tour of five continents, 21 countries and over 60 cities to mark the most connected trophy tour ever, leading up to the 2019 ICC World Cup tournament from the 30th of May to the 14th of July in Wales and England. Kuben Pile is the ICC Africa director. Up close with the trophy, uh, it inspires the next generation of cricketers and it's more for the awareness of the game and for the Cricket World Cup itself. The trophy will depart Nigeria on the 13th of February. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Etio Chemani. This is Africa Digest. Your top story again this hour. South Africa's political parties debate Ramaphosa's Sona speech. And with that, it's a wrap from the Africa Digest team. That is myself, Gahisho Tretelo, our producer, Ronald Piri, our technical producer, Ms. Didimalo Makao, and the rest of the team. Thank you for listening. Our email address is info at channelafrica.co.org. You can also send an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour is Dobet Narohe with Baleza.